My parents always told me that I could do anything. As I've grown up, there was moments of unwinding that, <laughs> of like realizing your own humanity. Today's guest is Mickey Meyer, LA-based Oscar-winning producer and former network president at Group 9 Studios. As a professional, Mickey was one of the forerunners when YouTube and the creator movement disrupted the media business. He has worked with stars such as Sarah Silverman and Michael Cera, and he produced the Oscar-winning short film Two Distant Strangers for Netflix. What makes me excited about Mickey is his special ability to show up as a leader. I admire his leadership across his roles as a president of a company with a 200 million turnover and a family man and a father of two. For me, it remains a mystery from where on earth he still gets to his drive to also be a beloved leader and coach of a little league baseball team. My name is Risto Kulasma and I'm your host at Talks of Imperfection, where we meet nearly perfect people revealing their imperfections. Our intention is to create an encounter where we learn and get inspired about what kind of role imperfection plays in our private and professional lives. Welcome to the show. I have a moment, like a more grandiose uh, encounter with perfection that I think has set the tone for a lot of my life. You know, sometimes for for better, sometimes for worse. In that, my parents always told me that I could do anything. My mom was very, very, you know, a very positive person that um, imbued in me this this feeling of like you can be whatever you want to be, and a lot of praise and you know especially as the the eldest son a lot of like you know i think for them the 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 you know what's the apple in their eye kind of you know feeling of you're great you're great you know you're so good at everything you do and you're so you know you you i played baseball and there's like oh my god you're you're such a great baseball player you played hockey oh you're so you're you're doing so great there's so much positive belief that it was a feeling of like you're perfect you are amazing you're so great and I think for me, you know, as I've grown up, there was moments of unwinding that, <laughs> of like realizing your own humanity. And then also maybe another layer deeper of realizing that that's okay, because there's a moment of like, okay, maybe I'm not what I thought my, my parents thought that I was or who they thought that I was. And trying to understand what other people thought I was and then trying to understand what I thought I was and understanding what I am have all been different layers kind of along this journey. But I think as far as like my first real, you know, moment of, of interaction with the idea of perfectionism was like, Oh, I am perfect. I'm, I'm everything. I'm so good at everything. And just this, this, you know, very narcissistic, um, you know, uh, you know, caption of my life. And, What's been interesting too as I've as I've grown up and like starting to unwind this even for my own kids is I think a lot of that was reinforced in media was just like seeing, you know seeing myself as the main character in every single thing that I watched. I'm blonde haired, blue eyed little white boy watching you know, all these movies and shows where like that is, that's the main character. You've got Zach Morris and Saved by the Bell, or you had, you know, like Kevin McAllister and Home Alone and like all these iconic movies. It's always like that guy, maybe his hair's a little bit different or maybe his eye color's a little bit different, but like for the most part, like everybody that I saw that looked like me was the main character in every movie. And so, yeah, of course, which is I think somewhat natural is like you grow up as a kid viewing yourself as the center of the universe and that was my own, I guess, definition of perfect perfection from the get was like, Oh, that's like, I am perfect. And unwinding that to be like, no, I'm, I'm flawed. I'm very flawed. Here's how I'm flawed. And then also that other layer of like, it's okay to be flawed. Let's fast forward how it felt to hold the Oscar trophy in your hands. Um, unbelievable. I mean, a very sobering moment for sure, where I, I went through a weird mental you know, roller coaster of emotions leading up to that moment. And then coming out of that moment that 
you know, still I, you know, this it, is it's a it's a career aspiration, right? You put that on your dream board as like this is I hope I I hit this mark one day, and that you're given that that sense of validation. And I'm still very young in my career. This was the first film really that I made. I mean, I've made other short films, and I, I've made a lot of content and produced TV and all you know all this stuff, but this is the first time that I'd ever entered something into or that we had ever entered something into an Oscar race. And even just that, like they say it, it's cliche. But it's like, even just getting on the short list was like a, Oh my God, this is an unbelievable feeling. And then you get on the, you get nominated. It's like, Oh my God, we're, we can now say that we're Oscar nominated producers and Oscar nominated, you know, writers and whatever. And then you have that moment where it happens and it is, it was yeah major sense of validation but then to to yeah have that i'm now an oscar not, i'm an oscar winning producer in front of your name it changes your life forever can you describe the exact moment when you touch the trophy i can but i i think that the moment almost right before may be more more meaningful um because i, I know that this was you know within the the questions that you you have laid out was you know, what's, what's the closest you've felt to perfection. And it was that moment for me. Um, so I, how it worked because we, we, we have, this happened in the, in the COVID year, um, or the, I guess the second COVID year with, <laughs> for the, the Academy. But I, uh, I, I, you know, nobody was allowed to go to the ceremony other than you have two, two people that are allowed to go. And so it's the writer, in uh, writer director combo of Trayvon Free and Martin Desmond Rowe, who, who ultimately were going to go, and then everybody else for all every film had like their own watch parties, and you'd go, and it's all the other producers and you know cast and whoever who's you know financiers, whoever's you know been supporting the project and their significant other spouses, whatever, get together, watch the the screening together, and I was supposed to go to it, but I had a little league game scheduled at the same time that I was a manager of uh, my older son's team. It was, it was like a decently important game too. And I, I don't know why I made the decision, I guess, just because I, I you know, my maybe priorities are, are hopefully right or maybe an out of skew, but like I decided to manage the game, the game ended then the idea was I was going to come home because the award was later in the, the catalog or later in the things to be announced. And I would come home, change, and then go to the watch party. And it just so happened that like right when the game finished, they, I got a text that said like, Hey, we're about to be announced and they moved it up. And so I, and because they, they, they don't ahead of the, the, the ceremony, they don't tell you when the things are going to be announced. There's like a, they, they're very anti that. And so it's, it's like, you have your connections, you have your PR contacts that say like, Hey, it might be here, it might be there. And so we thought it was going to be at the end, but you had no idea. And so we get the text. Hey, it's, it's next up. We boogied home from here and my whole family just happened to be with me, you know, on that day. And so we walked in, turned it on and they said, he had next up, this is the award. And everybody kind of gathered around the TV to watch it. And it got announced and yeah, that was, that was it like that was the most perfect moment I think I'll ever have in my life of just like getting this crazy recognition for something that I've worked so hard for in so many different ways that just the universe kind of rewarded me with this moment and rewarded everybody with the moment. But like, you know, the, that, that feeling to have that moment surrounded by my family, to be able to watch it turn with my boys two two younger boys who are both like jumping up and down and their cousins who are there, you know, or my nieces and nephews who feel like they're my own children at times and have my wife there and my parents there and just have, you know, champagne. And so that celebration, that moment was unlike anything I think I'll ever be able to experience for the rest of my life or have, have experienced up until then. And so, yeah, later then that night went to, went to the watch party and Martin and Trayvon had like their entrance into the party shortly after I got there and I got to, to hold it. But you know, it's in a sea of people with everybody trying to get their piece of that action and trying to feel like they're a part of it. And there was definitely like a stillness to being able to hold it there. Uh, and then we went out and partied later that night, uh, as, as you do. And, uh, I got to spend more time with it and just kind of like hold it and sit with it. And it was just like, you know, it's, it's a, it's such a dumb thing 
because it's a you know, it's a piece of metal and it's you know you care so so much about this thing um, and have such aspirations and so many you know uh, reflections about it and so you're staring at it realizing the insanity of it while also feeling you know the highest highs that you've ever felt you know on a on a career level that this is this is part of your your journey now um and so yeah i mean like i'd say it's you know it's a hunk of metal but it's not it's it, it symbolizes so much and so it's just that like physical manifestation of that that symbolism that um yeah i, I definitely you know I, i'm grabbing my hand you can't see how this, this is a podcast but it's like i'm grabbing my hand as if i'm holding it right now and so um yeah that was the moment cool walk us through the um the career that ended up ended to that moment and is continuing obviously um could you walk us through your career and and reflect a bit around the perfection and imperfection on the way really um i think you know so when i first when i first got you know my first introductions into entertainment came so much through just like being living in a small town watching movies and tv and being in awe of it and that was my escape that was my like i this is a world outside of it outside of my life and i you know played a lot of sports that was my like day one this is what i want to do and when i realized that that was not maybe in the cards for me entertainment was my was my happy and i had always come to the come to this um you know idea in my head of like that's if you find the thing that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And so I was like, okay, well, this is what I want to, this is what I want to dedicate my life to. I do love entertainment. I want to be a part of that and I want to help make. And I don't think I really even knew what that meant yet. And so I had an internship first when I, I had gone to school in Colorado, wanted to get into the entertainment industry. I, tr I came out for the summer for an internship on the West Wing, a TV show. And, uh, you know, work that with the idea of like, okay, I'm going to go back to school decided that I fell in love with California, didn't want to leave California and was kind of a moment of like, okay, if I'm going to do this, this is it. This is, I got an entrance into it. They had offered me a, a, a job as a PA. And so I stayed on as a PA and production assistant. And so like I decided to then go to community college. And even that was, I'll say like checking back to the perfectionism or perfection piece of it was like, that was a really hard decision for me because, you know, you're chasing this idea of what perfection has been built into you of like, Oh, I, I go to high school, I graduate, I go to college, I graduate, and then I get a job and leaving a prestigious college to then go to a community college that anybody can get into was this moment of like, am I really going to do this? Like, am I okay? And I don't know why it didn't really like there was a there was an am I really going to do this but it almost never was a question it was like no this is what I want to do and this is like what I think will will work and I'm everything is going to work out fine I just had that belief I guess and I went to to Santa Monica College and, and busted my butt there continued working on the West Wing and then wanted to transfer into USC because it had it was great in film and TV and if I wanted to do entertainment that's where I wanted to learn so I applied to all these schools and got in a bunch of different places, was about to go to UCSB, about to go to like UC Irvine, or I don't even remember what some of these other schools were, and got into USC last of all of them. Went there, uh, stopped working on the West Wing, met at USC a group of comedians and uh, called uh, that had a sketch group called Good Neighbor, started kind of working with them started was in the theater school had a lot of talented acting friends which is kind of what got me into producing and started making me realize like okay I can help you I understand some of the mechanics of this because of the the internship and the production stuff and I I was starting to work my way up the ladder on the producing side and it was terrible it was you know <laughs> like Work it never, you know, what is the, you know, what's the, the expression I just said is like, you know, find the thing you love, you'll never work a day in your life. It was like, that was, ne had never been felt more wrong. Cause I was like, this is nothing but work and I hate all of this. And it was nothing glamorous. You know, your PA it was like, Hey, somebody that, you know, some, a homeless person just like pooped in the alley over there. We need you to go pick it up. And it was like, dear mom, Hollywood's great. You know, like <laughs> this is not what I imagined at all, but it was work and it was in the entertainment industry. So I was like, I guess this is what it, what it is. And then uh, on the, the parallel path to that, um, the sketch sketch comedy group that I've been working with good neighbor um, had 
met this guy, Danny Zappin, who started, was starting to make YouTube videos. And I went and I sh- starting to make, not YouTube videos, he's starting to build a, a company around making YouTube videos. And I went to shoot one of these videos with them just because I had a, a camera that I think that they, <laughs> they you know, loved and uh, they needed someone to come help them. I went and shot a video that was the first ever uh, epic rap battles of history and that kind of blew up. And it was this very like, you know, um, eye-opening moment of this this is really fun. Like I came and made this video and it was just like kids playing around and we shot it with like a work light and like, you know, green cloth that was bought at a fabric store or not like, you know, green screen or anything like that. And that version of entertainment was so much more enjoyable than the like, Hey, we need coffee. Can you go and grab it? That it was like, this is, even though this is probably gonna be less money, like this is way more interesting and teamed into maker. And like when you talk about, things being perfect like it was the opposite right it was like there was nothing that was being done right other than having fun like that was there and that was the core of so much of it the ambition was there Danny Zappin who founded it like had 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 great vision for it but when it came to like executing at a layer of like this is how I want you know like how a, a production which is typically very like if you're doing it at a higher budget level is like very very buttoned up overly thought out like over like there's no risk involved in it there is like you're thinking about what meals you're going to buy, you know, five days prior to ordering lunch for you know people. It's like, it's just not, you know, there's no risk involved. Whereas this was flying by the seat of your pants and no, no ability to put forth into anything as much as just trying to keep up with the, the, the pace of what the internet was starting to provide. And what year was this? This is like 2000. Oh man. 2008. 2009 somewhere somewhere in there maybe 2010 even um this is like maker started right after the partnership program in 2006 started for youtube and so it was probably shortly after that that maker studios really started to form and yeah and can you describe those days because you know some of the listeners are not that educated about the creator movement and and the rise of the youtubers can can you uh, kind of describe what was going on back in that time yeah so that um that time was just, it was, it felt so just experimental, you know, it felt like there was just so much, um, so much happening that felt in so many ways organic, but also just felt like pure resistance to let's not do things the way that they've been done because something's not working. You know, it felt if you were on the outside looking in from how things, how relationships had been formed, um, it was, it was an impossible thought that you could come up with a show idea and pitch it and get it sold. Like that was just not, there was no, there was zero possibility for you to be creative in moment one. You could maybe go join like a writer's room or something and like work your way into it and, you know, find yourself as a 50 year old later on down the line was kind of like the, you know, allure that you might be able to create something, but like there's no financing available. There's not, you know, these, these networks and TV networks, like they were, had, established buyers that uh, or established sellers that like I just they were buying from the same people over and over and over again as opposed to buying from someone new so why would they trust you and like that idea of like a talent getting somehow discovered was more on the acting side than the producing or the the filmmaking side uh, unless you could you know do what do the impossible so that feeling that those early days was almost like a just a rejection of that notion of like no we want to make whatever we want to make i don't want to you know if i'm selling you a comedy i don't want you to tell me that the blue chair is funnier than the green chair i want to be able to decide what's funniest i want to make it the way that i want to make it and so that was what i think brought so many people into that moment of just like we're going to just figure it out and danny and the maker team did like they they took a stab at like, we think that this is how it's going to work and much, you know, just coincided with how YouTube was evolving and the fact that they were starting to pay out money meant like we can make something. It's not going to be Game of Thrones, but we can go put this money to make a thing that we want to make. And that was like, that was all we needed to then just grow that piece of it. And then you, you moved forward with the maker when Sarah Silverman, Silverman came to the picture. Yeah. So I, you know, was at Maker for a while. Maker went from what was like eight employees to 300 seemingly overnight over the course of, I think, like two years and took on investment money. And what 
I fell in love with about maker and that autonomy started to shift a little bit in just the need of growing a business. And at the time the MCN business model was, you know, it became a game of quantity less than quality, which was antithetical to what I really wanted to do. And so we left, I left maker when I met this guy, Daniel Kellison, who had started to form, uh, started to form Jash really off of a mandate from YouTube where they wanted more original programming. They wanted some celebrity names. They wanted other genres to entice advertisers. And so we, Daniel found me by kind of the grace of the universe and, uh, and said he needed someone that understood how YouTube worked. And so brought me in in early days, as well as our other co-founder, Doug DeLuca, who really was the first one that YouTube reached out to. And Daniel had gone out and tried to put together a group of comedians that would find what we were doing interesting. And so he, I think, yeah, started with Sarah. Sarah had the same, uh, same was represented by the same manager as Michael Sarah, who then had the same agent as Tim and Eric. And then Reggie was kind of the one that they all unanimously were like, hey, we should bring Reggie into this mix. He, he, nobody had really, he had a following, but not like the following that he has now. And yeah, we formed Jash and Jash was its own crazy roller coaster. And we did so much and won, you know, Can Lions and won Sundance and, you know, got, you know, I got to work with the Obama administration and help them to understand how influencers and that the YouTube community worked. And, you know, the idea in so many ways was to offer that autonomy that I think appealed to me in the early days and appealed to Daniel about the internet and offered that studio system and autonomy to comedians because they were probably the most impacted by, Hey, green chair is funnier than blue chair. And like comedy, if it's done right and done to its best ability is truth. And so the less you can water down that truth, the better, uh, in my opinion. And so that that's kind of where Jash generated from. And then Jash, uh, about five years into it, we were out raising a Series B. We're talking with uh, Group Nine, and they said, "Hey, we'd like to acquire you instead of investing you." And we uh, decided to go that path. And so, about five years ago, now. And what kind of role you took in at Group Nine? Yeah, so within Group Nine, now I oversee uh, all of our original programming, all of our studio efforts, and the president of Group Nine Studios, and basically everything that. You know, my, my focus as I came in was we need to build out revenue that was not ad sales. And so, you know, I helped to establish relationships when it came to platforms and, you know, how to how to capitalize on building YouTube audience and what that meant and how to look at, you know, investing against intellectual property. We started out, you know, the podcasting business and did uh, kind of our own R&D effort around consumer products and what that might mean and how we could start getting affiliate style relationships and what brand licensing meant and things like that and what original programming meant and how we th should think about that and what those types of margins are versus what we want to build long term and then what is that value on intellectual property and light in our library and licensing that library out and yeah it's it's grown leaps and bounds i think it was like a hundred thousand dollars a year you know business when we we first started and it's grown you know very significantly since then and then we just uh, recently merged with um, with Fox Media, um, who has a, a treasure trove of amazing brands as well. Group Nine has the Dodo, and now this, and Seeker, and uh, Thrillist, and Pop Sugar, and Jash obviously as well. And then has merged with Vox as Fox and Eater and The Verge, and uh, you know its own trove of brands. And the idea is just hey, scale. We need that quantity. Here comes that word again. <laughs> Let's talk about leadership. How how you see yourself as a leader? What what kind of leadership style you are practicing? Yeah, I it took me a while to understand what being a leader meant because when I first came into this, you know, my, my aspiration was never business. You know, it's like we even we were talking about it before, like, oh, I'm gonna make the decision, get involved in entertainment. It was I had never gone to business school. I'd never had a desire to like raise money for a company or anything like that. Um, I, I kind of happened into it as a means to an ends. It was, I want to support my friends who are artists and creators and that's what I enjoy. So I need to understand how this business works so that I can then help them to navigate it. And that was really like early YouTube maker days. 
And then I found an enjoyment for it. I found an enjoyment for like systemizing things and then ultimately for managing people and managing in, in my best, you know, version of it, uh, or the, you know, what I feel is the best version of management is support is just helping people to unlock their potential, helping them to understand how they can join with other people to accomplish a shared goal. And it's taken a long time to get to that because I think when I first started it, it was like, okay, well, I, I know I want to be a good person and I don't want to be a bad boss. I don't want to be the person you see, you know, in cartoons that is like yelling at people and any of that. Um, and so it was like a little bit of unwinding that idea of like a boss is someone who yells and a boss is someone who is like saying yes or no to people and starting to unlock that idea that like, no, a boss is the person that helps you to unlock what is possible in your life. You know, I, ha I have this interview question uh, that I love that is, you know, what, what would you do with $5 million? And it always takes people off guard because, you know, it's an interview and people don't, you're expecting the like, you know, how, how well do you do Excel <laughs> question? And um, it's my favorite one to ask because you get the best answers. And sometimes people definitely like will give you the, the answer they think that you need to hear. But be honest, you know, it's like if, if you're smart, you're honest in that moment because I've gotten answers that are like, oh, I would love to be a chef or like I would I would do nothing but travel the world or I, I would, uh, you know, I would create this thing or I would do that thing. And, you know, if that answer doesn't line up with the job that I'm trying to find and I'm not going to be able to help you do that thing, this is going to be terrible for you. Like you're going to come in and this isn't that thing that brings you happiness. And I'm going to be asking you to do something that like helps everybody else and helps this team. And it's going to be consistently at conflict what, with what you enjoy, you know, like that, that, that idea of, of a manager telling you, to do a thing because it's what needs to be checked as a box is just such an arcane way to look at. And what's your imperfection as a leader that you are working on? I think my imperfection is, I mean, I'm still perfect. So don't, you know, get that wrong. <laughs> no, I mean, I think my, my imperfection is maybe an, an attention to, to details and, at the same time, like I, I find so much more beauty and productivity and not getting so far in the weeds that you would ever, you know, compromise someone else's vision. And so like that, that perfection for me comes in and that like attention to details comes in for something that is like a project that I specifically own that I have a vision for. But when it comes to other people's projects, like I don't look as under the microscope as maybe I should sometimes to catch something that, you know, might help them. But, um, it's also, I think it's kind of give and take, right? It's like that happens in a moment too, where if I had that attention to detail about something so much so that I'm then suggesting things to you that are complicating what it is that you're trying to create or challenging you in ways that, you know, are going to frustrate and get to the point where it's like, this is you're focusing on the wrong things versus focusing on kind of the more grandiose picture of things. Um, you know, it's a give and a take, I guess. And if you look back the um, path from creator to leader, from creator to cameraman to uh, president of, um, of um, a big, big company, what has been the biggest learning, learning, learnings on the on the way i think the, the biggest learnings has been on that management piece i really and i think there's still i still what i and i i credit very much my my parents and my upbringing and, and the privilege that I, I had growing up that like i i still believe any i can do anything and that is it's an overwhelming piece at times but i'd say the biggest you know it double-edged sword here is like the biggest block to you being able to do anything you want to do. And the biggest tool to being able to do anything you want to do is other people. And if you can, you know, find the way to interact with other people in a way that is not just beneficial for you, 
that is a tool that you can use in so many ways for good, right? Like you're not, it's not, it, it removes, hopefully, you know, if you're doing it right, I think you're, you're removing the transactional nature of like, Hey, you can help me to do this thing. And you know, tit for tat. Now I owe you a favor later on as much as like, Hey, this is a thing we both care about. Like, let's find the way to use what we both have in our, our arsenal to go figure it out and get it done. And, uh, that, that for me, like in this entire journey is something that I take a lot of pride in and I, I hold very dear to, and I'm always maybe self-conscious of too, of like, I, I don't want to do something with you if you're not, if I'm forcing you to do it, you know, like, yeah, there's moments where I, I need a favor for sure. Everybody does, has that moment. But like when it comes to larger collaborations, it's like, I, it's so much easier to, to go about things in that way, as opposed to I'm going to pay you money to do a thing. And like, that's the only way that we can work together. You know, I don't know. What's your take on success? What does success mean to you? Um, success is, oh man, it is, uh, I say that, you know, I went on this, this mental roller coaster after, after the Oscar. And I think that I, I asked myself this question a lot and I still ask myself this question a lot just because that was, you know, that was associated with a version of success for me that like, okay, I've now achieved this thing. What's next? Like, what am I happy? Am I not happy? Like, what did, what did this do for me? Is this success? And, you know, I think success for me is that support and like finding, finding things that I, I believe in that I'm able to support and create meaningful change. So like one thing in particular right now that, that spawned part of that, uh, part of my involvement in that film, Two Dozen Strangers was I, you know, I, I've used my skill set now across a lot of this stuff for the biggest you know, influencers in the world for the biggest, you know, comedians in the world for, you know, the biggest advertisers in the world, corporations in the world, uh, for, you know, the largest, one of the largest governments in the world in the United States. And it came to this moment of like, okay, I've been at group nine for a minute. What do I want to do? Like where, what do I want to put my skill set behind? Because I've used it for everybody else, but I haven't used it for myself. And I've got my two little boys and my, uh, my younger son Knox looks just like me. He's blonde-haired, blue-eyed little white boy, uh, by all appearances. And my older son Logan looks more like my wife, who's Ecuadorian and has brown skin, brown hair, brown eyes. And you know, we watch movies pretty religiously every night, and obviously watch a lot of content, but movies in particular. And it was a very eye-opening thing for me that there's a lot of movies for one of my kids and not a lot for the other. And especially during COVID. He, you know, Logan started to go through a little bit of an identity crisis and, you know, we, we ended up reading a lot of books and that helped. And I think that he, he's now, he's a great reader. And I think that he, although he procrastinates like crazy and half the time, like, hey, finish your book, come on. <laughs> he's like, but anyways, um, that, that piece of of how things are operating or how they've been operating where we've started to address representation at more of an adult level, but for kids, it still doesn't exist in that way yet. And being able to see all of your possibilities in the same way that I was afforded, it has become a large thing for me. And so that idea of building empathy through representation in whatever I do, uh, is really become kind of my mission and now. And so I'd say like success for me as it exists today might change from how it is exists for me in five years, but is like, how can I meaningfully contribute to that on a regular basis? And if it's either as a producer or just putting projects together or finding a kind of more systematized way to address it that appeals to, you know, capitalism so that it will stick. Um, that's, that's where I'm currently defining success, you know, on a career career level, I think on a personal level, it is, you know, do I get to spend time with my family? Do, are they happy? And are they, you know, am I supporting them in the way that they need to be supported? Just like a manager is like, am I supporting my oldest son to find the things that he loves that aren't necessarily the things that I love? Am I supporting my younger son to find the things that he loves that aren't necessarily the things that I love? Am I supporting my wife so that she's not feeling like, you know, an appendage to me or to our boys so that she's finding her version of happiness and things that challenge her, you know, along the way. 
What's the most perfect sketch out there? Perfect sketch, like comedy sketch? Um, oh, man. I am a huge fan of Invisible Dinner by Good Neighbor. That that is uh, That's a great one. Um, there's so many. SNL has done so many that, that good neighbor sketch group went on and has now been on SNL for, for a long time. And there's so many that came from within that. I mean, obviously all, like I loved all the lonely Island stuff. Um, <laughs> there's maybe a crass one, but like jizz in my pants cracks me up every single time. Um, I love, we, we did a short that is, I don't know if you'd qualified as a sketch, uh, that was based on an article written by Aaron Blair, um, called how to lose a guy or how to lose weight in, four easy steps and it's that you know i don't want to spoil it too much but it's that that one is one of my favorites um i don't know what it's called there's another one that's done by good neighbor toast 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 is a great one toast is probably my favorite one toast is you know three guys kyle nick and beck um of good neighbor who are about to go out on a you know, a night to drink and they agree that they're going to you know do a toast before they go out. And the toast just kind of keeps building and building and building, uh, throughout the sketch until there's a, you know, funny button at the end of it as well. But it just, you know, keeps getting to more and more ludicrous, uh, um, you know, machinations of what a toast could be. So <laughs> cool. Can you describe where we are at this very moment and, and what kind of role little league plays for you? Yeah, I think, I mean, and this is, Little League is, a, is such an interesting thing when it comes to this concept of perfection. Um, yeah, we're in an announcer's booth for Little League is where we're recording this. Um, and, you know, Little League, baseball is, this, is a beautiful sport to me. And there's a lot of sports, you know, that I've played in my life. Baseball has this kind of beautiful aspect to it where the best baseball players in the world fail at the plate seven out of 10 times. And, you know, if you're a pitcher, you're going to, people are going to hit the ball. Like that's, it's an impossibility. You know, it's a very rare thing to be able to throw a pitch where, you know, pitch in a game where there's no one hitting it, no hitter. So, you know, for me, little league has this special place in that you're teaching kids how to fail and you're, you know, as a perfectionist or as, as someone who's trying to find that, you know, that idea of perfection, it is a reminder that you'll never like perfect can't exist where there is no failure. There, there has to be a version of perfect for you where failure is a part of the process in, in that aspiration. And, you know, you can have moments where you have a perfect day, you know, quote unquote, where you have like, you hit everything the way that you wanted to hit it and you, you know, pitch a perfect game and like there's there's the there are these things to baseball that you can aspire to but by and large and especially at the youth level you're teaching a kid how to how to process a moment where they didn't accomplish the thing that they set out to accomplish and like their reaction to it and i used to say this thing to my my uh my older sons what was called like double a team so like seven and eight year olds um, whereas like, if you, if you don't believe you're going to hit a ball, you're, you're probably not going to hit it. Like if you go up there and you don't think you can do this, like it's all but impossible to like convince the bat somehow that you hit it or, or it's going to be blind luck because you're going to swing and like the ball may, may hit your bat, but like probably not. If you believe you can, you've given yourself a shot, right? If you believe that you can do this, you, you do. And so if you just struck out and you now are thinking, oh man, this is, I'm going to strike out again because I just struck out. And like, this is how I've defined my life is based on this last failure. Again, you're going to perform worse than if you go into this, completely forget what just happened and say, I've got this next pitch. I've got this. Like, I, I believe in this. Like, that's my, my other favorite saying, I think within baseball is like next pitch, like immediately forget the thing that you just did. If you just did a home run, that's amazing. doesn't matter anymore. What's the next pitch? Like, you've got to move on always to the next thing. It doesn't mean that you can't celebrate your moments and celebrate your wins, but you know, you have to have that mentality that you're only defined by the thing that you you know, are going to do next because it just gives you that, that freedom. And how you balance with your perfection driven mindset as a coach. And then, you know, you have these little guys who obviously try their best, but, um, you know, 
do you, do you push them to perfection or or how you balance your own own um uh, win, winner mindset with them it's hard i mean I, i it's harder than people let on and harder than i think i let on is like I've watched, I get to watch this evolution because I'm the president of our little league. Now I get to watch this evolution across all these different divisions. And now I'm in the second highest division, but I oversaw the highest division last year. And, um, it's interesting to see like the highest division is probably the least like competitive at the coaching level, which you would think would be the opposite, right? That like, that's where you'd be the most competitive and people are the most on edge and like the kids can handle it maybe a little bit better than, but no, like this is. Think back on the things that you've kept doing in your life. Did you ever keep doing one because someone yelled at you? You know, like you keep doing it because someone encouraged you and because you found joy in it and you keep kind of pulling that string. And it's the same thing for kids, right? Like our rookie team, you'd be amazed at how many kids for T-ball, like the youngest division, people are like trying to keep track of score and, you know, nobody gets out. <laughs> It doesn't matter, but people start to get like a little, like the fangs start to come out a little bit. Like, why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? And none of those kids come back that have that interaction with their parents that are like, you didn't do this or you're not good enough or whatever. Like they don't want, they have a million choices in life at that age. Like you can do a million other things. Why go back to this thing that does not bring them happiness? And so, you know, I think, you have to be competitive. You can't be completely, you know, uh, apathetic because it is a game. You're trying to win a game and you're trying to, to beat the other team, but focusing on team and focusing on what you can teach the kids. And that is like where you have to find your own reward as a coach, not in your wins and losses. And it's easy. Like you find yourself like, Oh man, that that other coach is a dick and I just want to beat him so badly. And like when it doesn't happen, you're like, shit, these kids let me down. You know, like it's hard not to find those, you know, subconscious thoughts of, of like what you want to do and why, you know, what you're analyzing as a coach as to like how you could have won and should have won. But you have to find the ability to remind yourself that that's not, you know, one, what it's all about, but then two, that that's not the success metric. The success metric comes from like, did this kid have a good time? Are they coming back next season? Did they get better? And what's your, how, how you comfort the, the, when the game is lost? Like how, how you address the team? You know, I think it's very important to, yeah, talk through things. I like to, I like to hear from the kids kind of first and, You know, we talk about the next pitch mentality, but there is also, there is value in reflection, you know, uh, at that level, in my opinion, to like, I'd like to say what the kids say, like, what did you see? What worked? What didn't work? Like you tried a bunch of stuff out there and what did you learn? Because especially like they're learning about thinking of baseball. Baseball is like a very intellectual sport. It requires an education when a ball is hit. There's a million different machinations of what could happen. If there's a runner on second, do you throw the ball to third? Do you try and throw the ball to first? Do you tag him? What do you like? There's all these different rules and nuances to the sport that they're learning about. And so that's kind of like the, the first layer for me is like, okay, what happened in that game that we can learn from that we can apply to the next game or we can apply to that next pitch. So, you know, when that ball got hit to center field, I threw it to, first base, I should have thrown it to second base. Or, you know, when I was up on a three and O count, I swung and I popped the ball up and maybe I should have given the pitcher uh, a pitch and then had more time to get the pitch that I wanted to hit or whatever, whatever those things are. Like I like to go through that uses learning experience. And then more often than not, it just becomes like, let me get your head right now. Okay. That's that happened. That's in the past. Are we going to work to get better? Yes, we are. Okay, what are we going to work at to get better now? Okay, we should work at kids to the outfield, or we should work at, you know, we should get more plate appearances. Okay, I'll see you guys at the next practice. We got it. You're going to be okay. Move on to the next one. You know, it's kind of a motivational more than anything. What has been the most significant trauma in your professional life, and what, what did you learn out of it? I think a lot of it came within Jash. There's like somebody backing up right now. <laughs> the We are at a little league field. Um, Jash was was a, a a moment for me of shifting from being a producer to to being an executive and being a founder for that matter. And I remember there was a moment where 
you know, because the three founders were producers by all means. Like Doug DeLuca, producer on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Daniel Kellison had been a producer of so many different shows. You know, Crank Anchor is the man show. Jimmy Kimmel Live, well, you know, David Letterman, all these great shows. And then myself. And I've been an executive and I've been within Maker Studios. But largely, like, my focus was still production. I understood the business side of it because I was learning it. But it was not like I had never raised money before or done anything like that. Or managed, you know, cash flow. And when I came in... We had this, we had, I think it was like $4 million that we had gotten from YouTube to start Jash. And we had, that was all allocated. It was a production contract. It was like, we had to go produce a bunch of stuff. And so we had produced those things, but then the background had formed a company and like, we're doing all this stuff. And that program is, was ending. It became clear that they weren't going to re-up, you know, the, the initiative. And so the question became like, are we going to keep going as a company or are we done? Like, do we execute the production company and we're done? And it was kind of obvious to me that like, no, we got to keep going like this thing. There's a lot of possibilities to this and like we can do so much more. And like, I believe in the mission of this. And so there was a moment where our, our controller, Natalie, who oversaw all of our, you know, our finances, um, de facto like CFO was like, Hey, I can't get anyone else's attention on this. Like we're running out of money. <laughs> do you, can you help me like get people to understand this and create action around this? And it was, terrifying because i had left maker studios which was a great you know paying job and had was on its own rocket ship and was about to get acquired for a billion dollars from disney and was now on this thing that like had no money and this was like my livelihood i'm not i need to have a paycheck to pay for my mortgage and i had a kid you know who's i think two or three years old at the time and about to have my second and it was a real moment of like, Oh shit, <laughs> Like, what have I done here? And very like, you know, stressful in the moment. And at the same time, like rose a little bit from the ashes of, of that like fight or flight moment to fight and said, all right, well, how much money do we have left? And like, how much money can we make? And what's the easiest ways for us to make money right now? And what are, you know, what are the, the things that are, are going to tip us in that direction? And just, you know, created action items around that with the other people that were involved and huddled the people that needed to be in these different conversations and, you know, had to let people go and, you know, go through, through was a very tough process for it being my first time to really like have a round of layoffs was not a thing that I had come accustomed to. And what, what does that mean? And like, how much time do we have to pay people? And like, what are the things that we have to do legally that are right here? What are the things that we have to do morally that are right for these people? And, um, yeah, it was incredibly like dramatic, but also I think in a good way, like pushed me into a mode of like, all right, no, I'm, I'm, I understand this now. I understand what this game of business is and I want to avoid this moment at all costs. And so what do we have to do? And, you know, I definitely had other moments where we had to let people go. I definitely have like had other moments where there was not money in the bank that we thought was going to be there and had to take on bridge loans and like go down the, the entrepreneur's journey. But, um, it, sh you know, continues, that moment continues to shape what I, how I envision a company. Like, cause th there was, there was also a moment within that, that, you know, we're looking at our office space and looking at all these different things that we can afford. And that the, the biggest question that started to come back to my mind was like, well, what is at the time Jash? I was like, what is Jash? Is it this office? Is, is Jash all these people here? Is is Jash like, you know, my salary is, is Jash like, what is, what makes Jash? And like Jash can exist whether any of us work in the same place. Jash can exist whether, you know, I'm a part of it or whether these other people are part of it. Jash, you know, Jash in theory is a mission. It's a concept. And that was also a very liberating moment. And even now as I'm starting to build on to kind of my next things, that was, I think it's a very, it's a, it's a very comforting thing. Like I've been working at things in the background for two years, not needing to have an office, not needing to have it be a funded exercise as much as like, let me find people that identify with this mission that I care about and can keep moving this thing forward. And what were the most perfect moments at group nine outside the winning an Oscar? Yeah, I think, you know, we group nine, um, Group Nine was formed on this notion that you know it's a it's better to do this together than apart, and so it was all these different brands that came together and said like, hey, let's let's 
pool our resources here and build something that can, you know, support brands and, and can help us to grow brands and, you know, deal with the capital raises and things like that in a, in a more thoughtful manner. And Discovery was the largest minority investor into Group 9. It really seeded the company's existence and they donated their digital assets as well. And when I first started, I was, uh, I, I didn't, I wasn't the president of Group 9 Studios and I was overseeing, you know, intellectual property and all these other things. But on the original programming side, that was kind of separate. And yet we had this great relationship with discovery and it was very piecemeal. And it was, if anything too, like when we would do these deals with discovery, it was like, Hey, we're going to help you out and produce a thing less than it was like, Oh, this is what is good for us and what we want to do. It was more about money less than about growth. And we went through an exercise as I took over group nine studios that was really like, okay, well, what do we want to do? Like, let's start there. Let's start with like, what is the thing that's right for the company to do? And like, what is our long-term goal? And started to really set that in motion around intellectual property. And we want to, you know, sell shows, but we only want to do it like when the money feels like it's right or a little caterpillar just fell off of there. <laughs> um, literally, baby, literally. Um, and so, you know, there was that, that moment happened and with, discovery i i had a real like roll up sleeves moment right as they were launching discovery plus that said like hey here's what we do here's where our skill sets are and here's what we're trying to build let me understand more about what it is that you're trying to build and we structured the largest commercial deal between the two companies um to go and develop shows and you know us it, it also helped us to identify like what is our place in the market and what is the thing that we bring when we're selling a show and why would people buy shows from us versus buy shows from, you know, this production company that's been doing it for 40 years. And I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that moment. It took a lot of people to get there, you know, obviously on the discovery side, on the group nine side, um, on, you know, the brand side for us, you know, creative side. And I, I truly believe that it's the first step towards unlocking a much bigger version of group nine studios and digital, production because you know so many people again it's still based off of like hey what's this great concept and you know let's go make this thing and who's the best maker of this thing and they bring in a production company and they shoot it and then it's done and nothing nothing you know nothing you can fully automate in this world you know and entertainment's always kind of buffed against this is like how do I how do I make you know the perfect show and it's like a, a computer could like tell me all the ways that the data lines up to make this thing perfect like not that doesn't that doesn't exist there's got to be creativity still at the heart of it but when it comes to the making of a show and when it comes to the optimizing of a show that's a rhythm that no major like you know publisher or platform really has figured out yet and that is the key to freedom in my my opinion is like if you can figure out okay here's a concept that you that you you know have some conviction over based on the data that you see like people will be interested in the community will be interested in this thing and you can you know add intelligence along the production path to say like hey we you know we know that people like let me give you an example because it'll be easier the dodo one of our brands um produces, you know, animal centric content and identified a strand of data that said animal people really like to watch animals overcoming adversity. And so the creative team got together and developed out a show about animals overcoming adversity called Comeback Kids. That show went up and averaged 40 million views an episode on Facebook. And they're like, yeah, people love watching this thing. Let's keep doing more of that thing. Brought that to Animal Planet and said like, hey, we've got this thing we want to develop something out longer form and all planet says, you know, Hey, our audience, we know them likes to watch humans more, but like we understand your perspective on the animals piece of it. Let's make a show about the, the humans that are helping animals to overcome adversity. And so that show goes up and it's the largest, you know, global freshman premiere premiere in animal planet history or some, you know, crazy gaudy stats, one in every five, you know, uh, uh, five viewers of the show were new to animal planet coming from Dodo and this audience that already existed from that show, uh, which ran multiple seasons, 
we've sold now a show that went, went straight to series for I think it was like 18 episodes to Disney in Roman to the Rescue about a kid who helps dogs get adopted and face, face their adversity and a show about um, this guy Derek Campana called Wizard of Paws it's now in its like fifth season um, about a guy who helps fashion prosthetics for animals and another show uh, about this this uh, girl Izzy who lives in Australia on a, a koala sanctuary and helps these koalas rehab and overcome their adversity. It's like that small strand of data allowed so much creativity to happen, but it was also de-risked, right? And now once we, because we also knew that we felt confidence in that data, it makes all of your targeting efforts easier. So I know I can maybe buy a viewer for this show if I needed to. I can advertise to them and make hopefully, you know, $10 off of the advertising I'm going to make to them for the $9 I need to spend to get them, right? Like that's that game of arbitrage is very real. And so that moment for me of signing that deal with Discovery to say, hey, you have financing and you you have a large platform and you're like, you know, merging with Warner now. It's like that that being married with what we understand about data, data science and optimizing and that feedback process unlock something massive to say, hey, we're going to go make a, this movie because we have this conviction and now we're going to market it smarter along the way and be able to optimize for other TV shows or other p- extensions of the IP. Like that, that's pretty big. Can you share a show from the other end of the spectrum which was more risky or intuitive, like didn't have the data to back, back it up? <sighs> yeah, I mean, not one that we've produced. Everything that we've produced really has is, is come pretty solidly out of data in some direction. I think that we had we had one show that um, was kind of brought to us from a network that was kind of a reimagining of Real Sex, that show that used to live on HBO. And it was a, all right, well, here's like our version of it and here's what we think people would respond to. And it ultimately just got caught in the crosshairs of a bunch of shows getting the rug pulled out from underneath them. Like we were supposed to start production on a Monday and got a call on a Friday that was like, Hey, this, we're going to pull the plug in the show. And that, you know, I, I write, I chalk up a little bit too. They're like, all right, well this wasn't our show. And like, we, we didn't have a crazy amount of conviction over it, but we did think it lined up with the brand and it helped for all these other, you know, these other things. But, um, yeah, that, that one, that one failed. <laughs> How you see where Hollywood is heading, where we are at the moment, and what 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 trends and and um, quiet signals you are you are catching? I think I mean what's what's amazing is it's never you know it's never been a better time to be a creator. Like there's so many tools out there for you to help you to get to the the place that you wanted to get to. You know when we started Maker, like none of these tools existed. The idea existed, and seeing that come to fruition where you have people that are making, you know, millions and millions of dollars a month, you know, creating stuff from their house in North Carolina or wherever, and they're making the exact things that they want to make. And like, that's, that's so cool to see. Um, I think that there's still a finance gap between that autonomy and the more ambitious projects that you see on an HBO or you see at the box office, the hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, in that way and I don't know that social platforms is what's gonna get us there and or advertisers you know backing a project like that's just not the the, the the equation doesn't fully check out and so you still need a financier to get there and is that financier a studio or is that financier a platform like that's yeah for right now that's how it kind of currently exists I my hope and my you know my vision for it is like if if I could write the future and if I could have all the resources in the world to go crack the code of it, like the most interesting machination for how something gets financed, if it can ultimately retain ownership in that creator economy and be community-based, that's where I think we'll see the most innovative content coming from. And so like Web3 is very, very interesting. And I think that that world of of DAOs and NFTs, and not NFTs is like, you know, I think it's a, a word that probably won't even be used in a couple of years. It's just, it's a, an easy way to describe technology right now. But 
that tokenization within a community to help support that community's efforts, I think will stands the ability to, to challenge traditional finance mechanisms for how content is made. And, you know, I'm hard pressed to think that there'll ever be a version where there's not like a billionaire somewhere that just like spends money and gets behind a movie that wants, they just want to make something, you know, like that, that will always exist. But I think that there'll be a, a, a newer, you know, I think that there'll be a newer evolution that will unlock and get rid of this finance gap to say, Hey, if you are a creator in, you know, Finland or wherever, and this is the thing that you want to see, you can tap into a community that can help fund that, which is already kind of there, but these tools that are evolving now make it so much more scalable than like, Hey, I'm going to ask my friends and family to like donate through a GoFundMe page. This is now, Hey, you can invest in this thing, see real upside in this thing. And, be you know participating and supporting things that you believe in along the way as opposed to the power only lying with a bank or with a studio what's your advice to young creators who strive for perfection uh there's there's this ira glass quote that i'm gonna absolutely butcher but (laughs) it's a very long quote i always like google it and like read it to people but um it's the general sentiment of it is when you first start out creating, you have an unbelievable taste and you have not honed your craft. And so everything you create, you think sucks. And so the key is basically to just keep creating. And as long as you keep going and you get past those humps, eventually you'll find a moment where your taste aligns with your your efforts and your creativity. And if you can get to that point, like the future's kind of yours, right? So that's always my advice is like, if you're creative, just create, like, you don't, you don't, don't, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be perfect. It will never be perfect. I've watched enough filmmakers, you know, get to this point where they uh, are releasing something or something has to be uploaded and they're making changes up until someone basically yells at them. And those are tend to be the best creators, right? Like they're trying to find their own version of perfection for the project that they care about and it will never be done. And like, most creatives get to that point where they start to learn that and it's very liberating, but it's also like where some of the best stuff I've ever seen comes from is that like frustration of chasing perfection and never being able to find it. But, um, that's what makes you great. Like that's your taste is what makes you great. It's like you keep chipping away at it. You keep trying to make it better. You keep, you know, uh, iterating and iterating and thinking through things and your gut is what makes you great. So if you're a creator, keep creating and you know go easy on the people that are trying to help you to create because they're they understand other parts of the process that are going to allow you to keep doing it so if we would create a perfect world what 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 are the areas that you you are kind of on a mission to fix i think that representation piece is probably the biggest is just i i want especially you know the the larger larger pieces of content that break through community and algorithms. Um, I want a better representation of the world in which we live. And it's much easier said than done because especially like just, you know, the nature of technology is everything has gotten so customized to who you are and then what communities you involve yourself in and, you know, what people you follow and, and all that kind of stuff. And so it's very hard to have something that breaks through. It's very hard to have, you know, these massive movies and TV shows that everyone turns their head and watches. It's much easier to have something that like a specific community watches. And that idea that we've kind of departed from of these like grandiose things, right? Like a a talk show used to reach 80 million people a night. Now it reaches 2 million at best. Like having something that crosses demographics and crosses communities, but is still representative of a world that is not, um, you know, straight white male has a heroic journey like that. That's the thing that I'm probably the most passionate about. And that if I could like mold my perfect society is like having that work very fluidly with the way these communities interact and can support each other. Like that, that's the dream, right? Like little league baseball is fully driven by a community. If you have, you know, your, your coaches are volunteers, you have, you know, the, people who are watching the games and the parents are putting money into not only registration, but then also into the snack bar where they're going to buy food. That money from the snack bar goes into the league who then spends it on jerseys. You know, it's like 
it works completely with some layer of autonomy. And if we can do that within media, that is when things will feel like the closest to perfection. Thank you for listening to the Talks of Imperfection. The podcast is enabled by Edita Prima, the kindest Nordic tech company that orchestrates automated customer journeys to perfection by turning data friendly. That's all, folks. It was good to have you on board. Please subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Instagram, and hold tight until the next episode.